welcome back to several of you. Um, this uh, class is titled Knowing How to Handle Abuse. Uh, and so the reason why, kind of when we were collaborating and talking about some of the classes that we'd like to present, this one came up because, um, like the class that Andrew teaches, it is a very difficult and uncomfortable thing to talk about. Um, it's not easy, even in therapeutic settings where it's kind of more common or people go there expecting to, but especially in the church, we don't want to talk about this because we're not really sure what to do or what to say a lot of times. And um, I believe that we all have good intentions to help, but a lot of times, unless we've had specific training on this or um, even personal experience with it, we don't know how to help people or what to say. We don't want to make the situation worse, so sometimes we think being silent makes it better. Um, and so we kind of wanted to have this class so that we could um, maybe just kind of present some of uh, the types of abuse that's out there and how we see it in the church and what we can do as a body of believers that love and care about each other. Uh, so statistics, and I'm not going to spend much time on this because they're a little bit depressing, but just to kind of give you a realistic view of what's going on, there's about 3 million um, child abuse cases reported every year. 3 million. Um, and that involves about 6 million children. So someone can call in and report abuse on multiple, chil multiple children at a time. So there's about 6 million children involved in these reports every year. So it's, it's a very real part of, um, of what we're involved in in our culture today. Statistically, in this room there would be at least two, possibly three or four people who have experienced some sort of abuse in their life. That's just a statistic on, um, it could be adults that have experienced childhood abuse or uh, people in abusive adult relationships. Um, so it's, it's something that, um, you know, those six million children grow up to be adults and they're still hurting. Um, like I said, I don't want to linger on this um, because it is a little depressing. There have been some st statistics to show that it is declining slightly since um, the late 90s, um, the child abuse reports. But that just means that there are a lot of children that were abused that are now growing up and becoming adults. And so what do we, how do we handle this in the church? Um, because as we bring people in from all walks of life, this will become even more apparent. Um, and then, of course, we can't ignore the fact that it happens within Christian families as well. Uh, and so uh, it's here. We need to talk about it. Um, what I love is that... Uh, God is in the business of redeeming and healing people. And that's the hope that we have when we face abuse. I feel sorry sometimes for kind of the secular view of how to treat abuse because they don't have the hope of redemption and the hope of healing um, that Christ provides. And that is a key part um, of, of how to heal people. <coughs> so I want to show you, uh, working with... Uh, traumatized children, specifically physical and sexually abused children, um, was my area of practice in D.C. for several years. Um, that was um, pretty much the only children I saw were the court-involved children uh, in the inner city there. And um, I did a lot of art therapy, a lot of play therapy with these kids, um, ages sometimes as young as two that had been abused, um, going up until um, even some adults that came in for abuse issues. But uh, one of my first uh, meetings with this young girl, she was eight years old, I asked her, um, just kind of leaving it very open to her, I said, I want you to draw me something beautiful. And uh, so you can kind of see that there is a, these petals kind of coming
coming out, and there's the, the stem. She's starting to draw that flower. And she's kind of going through it, and I'm just remaining very silent with her. And she um, draws it and looks at it. And it, I'm assuming in her mind it just wasn't good enough, or pretty enough, or perfect enough. And so what she did was she took the marker, and you can see she rubbed all the way through it, and these kind of like splashes, and she took the tip of the marker and like pressed it really hard so like drops fell out of it onto her papers, completely cover what she had drawn. And I, um, just to give a little bit of history on this little girl, she was eight and was brought in for sexual abuse. She'd have been, she had been abused by a family member and a friend of the family uh, from the time she was five. So some long-term sexual abuse that had gone on um, finally had been discovered, so she to, to see me. And so she does this to the flower, and I, and I just said to her, I said, wow, I, you know, I see you covered that up. And she said, yeah, because nothing is beautiful. And so to me, that was just a, um, a very clear picture of what her world was. Nothing was beautiful to her anymore. Um, with sexual abuse and any sort of interpersonal violence that happens to children, um, there's a huge distortion in the way they view reality, the way they view themselves. Um, and so they internalize a lot of the feelings that they have. Um, a lot of times because the violence has been from someone they know, uh, they're very confused about what love and abuse means, you know, because supposedly this was a person who loved me but they do these things to me. And so it's a very tricky and difficult thing to work with children who have experienced this. Um, and we would be very uh, unwise to believe that children just grow out of this, because they don't. Um, this is something that sticks with them for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. Uh, in John 10.10, Jesus said, A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I come to give life, life in all its fullness. So I, I think that there is a, definitely a difference between surviving um, and really truly living. And I think as Christians, that's the difference that we have, is that we don't want to go through life just kind of barely making it, surviving these uh, traumatic things that happen, or surviving the bumps and bruises that come along, but we really want to truly live. Um, and, and so kind of understanding that we have that difference as Christians uh, is very important. So understanding that it's here in the church, Everyone, I'm not sure if anyone has come in contact with a child or a person who's been abused in their past. Um, chances are you probably will. Um, and if you don't, um, you definitely are close to someone or maybe like physically close in the sense that you work with someone or um, if you're a school teacher, I don't have any school teachers in here. Okay, so you know, so it's, it's something that kind of cycles in and out of schools. Um, it's there. So what can we do? Uh, again, I think a lot of times we tend to do nothing because we don't want to make it worse. Um, so here are some kind of very specific things that we can do. So learn. Uh, what are some of the different types of abu abuse that exist? Emotional, physical, sexual. Emotional, physical, sexual, yes. Yep. What else? Psychological abuse. Absolutely. Spiritual abuse. So some of those, the spiritual abuse, psychological, emotional, those are uh, more difficult to uh, kind of quantify, I guess. It's a lot of times it's internalized. So you'll see a lot of externalizing behaviors because of them, but you won't necessarily see 
the physical representation of it, like you will with physical and sexual abuse, um, that's including of children and then of adults with domestic violence uh, type issues. So, in a situation where you do learn of abuse going on, or you suspect that maybe it is, <clears throat> um, once you know that, you, you really need to educate yourself um, about the type of abuse that it is, uh, and then I would really encourage you to evaluate and challenge your attitudes and beliefs about it. You know, we all hold beliefs about pretty much everything, right? And a lot of times, we get our information about abuse from where? TV. I mean, TV shows that we watch, right? You know, we see, like, abuse cases and stuff. Um, and so I, I, a lot of times we have some misconceptions about it or we have some biases about it. Um, a lot of times with domestic violence, we, while we may, if it's a female who's being abused, we can understand for a little while, but don't understand why she stayed for 10 years with an abusive spouse. And so at, at some point we kind of start thinking, like, well, isn't it kind of maybe a little bit of your fault for staying, right? And so we, we kind of have to really evaluate what beliefs we hold about um, abuse and um, people who have survived abuse. Um, some symptoms and warning signs of abuse in children, what do you think they are? This is a great school teacher here. I'm sure she's had training on kind of some things to look for. In children, what do we see?
the activities that they uh, become involved in, they become more um, sexualized in their behaviors. Uh, we see that in adolescents and children. Um, adolescents tend to act out more sexually um, with other people. Uh, children, we see, they just display sexual behaviors that a child their age shouldn't know about. Um, another thing we see with children, uh, when sexual abuse is present, we see them kind of drop hints about sexual things, um, making comments that kind of would require an adult to say, well, what do you mean about that? Um, or uh, just things that would be inappropriate for that child to know. They kind of drop hints um, in that way um, without getting too specific. It's, it's things that you would definitely see um, and you think, why, why are you asking that? Um, and that's kind of their way of wanting to reach out to someone. Like, I'm experiencing something, I don't know how to tell you, so I'm gonna say this really inappropriate thing to get your attention. Um, so we see that sometimes as well. Um, also, with adolescents, we see a lot of self-injury, so cutting, um, burning, things like that. Again, another form of punishment for themselves um, because of some blaming behaviors. Um, in a, inadequate personal hygiene, substance abuse really spikes a lot of times with, with uh, children, well, if they experienced it as a child or they're experiencing abuse as an adolescent. Um, and again, inappropriate sexual behaviors, running away from home, depression, anxiety, suicide attempts in adolescents, um, and then compulsive eating or dieting, more so in females um, than males. And then adults, what are some warning signs you think that we would see in adults? Because the behavior's gonna be a little bit different. This is one of the harder ones. Adults learn really, um, really well how to hide some things, especially if they're currently um, in an abusive relationship or still dealing with uh, some abuse from their, his, their, their past. Um, they learn how to cover that up to look normal or what they think is normal. So what are some things you might see in adults? Any ideas? Some that may be Yes. Thank you for saying that, absolutely. Um, kind of um, overdoing things to make it look like I've got it together. Yes. Yes, and so and that, that is one that I have here is that they are over eager to do anything that's asked of them. And so sometimes we see that as like, I'll volunteer for everything. I'll do everything. I've got everything. And so they're kind of overcompensating for this, um, this fear that they have, this um, kind of emotional emptiness that they have. And so they fill it with all these things that, so when people look at them, they don't see the hole that they feel they have. They see, oh, that person's super involved. Look how they do everything. And so no one will approach them and say, hey, something's going on. So that's something we see is that this over-eagerness. Um, we also see a, a physical signs would be an easy one. Um, withdrawal from friends, church family, um, you, you know, maybe someone who came you know, very faithfully to Wednesday night Bible study all of a sudden is either one slipping out really quick before people can talk to them or just not coming at all. Um, not wanting to be touched. Um, so that's another one we see with uh, particularly people who are in abusive relationships or for women more so when they've experienced sexual abuse in the past. They have a, um, a very interesting boundary about themselves and touch. Um, not just with men, but if other women try to hug them or whatever, it's, it's very, um, 
it's very difficult for them to accept touch from people. Physical reaction. Yes. Absolutely. So this is psychosomatics. There's a lot of those um, those physical representations of the emotional distress that they're feeling. Um, showing compulsive behaviors, and of course, then you would you would need to know the person a little bit better to know if it is a compulsive behavior. Um, but again, kind of this over eagerness to do everything, um, and then not being able to do things they used to. You know, say. Um, again, very involved in doing something once a week with you or, or once a week with a group, and all of a sudden they kind of make excuses for not being able to come anymore. Um, and we all know we get busy, it happens, but when you see it as a pattern, um, there's a high chance that there might be something else going on. Um, and, and for women who've experienced um, sexual abuse as a child or an adolescent, um, they find that the symptoms from childhood and adolescence carry over with a greater severity into adulthood. And you can imagine why. And this happens for men too. Men are just very, very underreported because of the stigma, stigma associated with sexual abuse of a male. Um, it's not talked about as much. You know, they um, aren't seen as victims um, as often as they should be in the sense of being, uh, not having the control when they're children um, or the power to be in control of situations. And so a lot of times, Men are kind of pushed to the side when in reality about one in six, um, one in six males have experienced some sort of form of sexual abuse. One in four women. Um, it doesn't mean it was chronic abuse. It was something um, that would be classified as sexual abuse. So it's um, definitely something that is out there. So those are some of the symptoms. Um, and so. We kind of see all these things. We, we identify something that we think just might be a little bit off. Um, or someone comes to us and says, hey, so-and-so has disclosed to me that this happened. So what do you do? Um, one of the best things that you can do is listen. I know that's kind of a no-brainer, uh, but you would be surprised at how often you just want to jump in there and like fix it or make the pain go away or um, refer them to someone else. I mean, that's... We don't want to say we do that, but it's kind of like, I feel so underqualified to do this. Why don't you go and talk to the minister? Or why don't you go, you know, so we're really quick to just kind of like hand them off or want to fix the problem that sometimes we forget to listen. Um, and so when there is, and it, this differs between children and, and um, adults disclosing abuse, um, you really, really want to search for clarity so that you can understand what is going on so you know kind of what the next step needs to be. Um, this doesn't mean that you need every detail of the abuse. Um, in fact, a lot of times, um, to protect yourself legally and emotionally, it's sometimes a really good idea for you not to know. Um, the thing you need to know is, um, for a child, if it's happening, who who it's happening from, who is the the abuser, um, and then you then you'll have to take legal actions. Um, but you just you search for clarity to know enough to know where to go. Um, the problem with children disclosing abuse is, unfortunately, they disclose to someone, say they disclose to a teacher that something is happening, and you know so they ask all the questions. Well, how how long has it happened? How when did it happen? How, and so they kind of go through this interview interview process, which isn't necessarily what they need to know. Um, they need you to listen and be supportive, but the thing is, they're going to have to retell their story over and over and over again to police, to social welfare, to 
to a judge, possibly, and so they have to recycle some kind of relive, a therapist, relive the story over and over again. So as someone uh, in the community, when you're approached with this, just having enough information to know the next step is really the best place for you to be at that time. Um, uh, then extend guidance. Um, and this is <clears throat> just a little bit more practical ways. Um, offer specific help. So I think sometimes we, because we don't know how to help, we'll say, well, call me if you ever need me. Well, the chances of that person calling you is, what? Not Probably not very high. They think, okay, this person's just kind of offering because they think they have to. Um, so in a, a circumstance like this, if, if an adult disclosed you know, to you that her spouse was abusive, or his, his spouse was abusive, which is also very common, saying something very specific, like, I can go with you to talk to so-and-so. So you have given something very practical, very tangible, that you were willing to do with that person to get them help. Okay? Um, so it needs to be um, very specific. If it's a child, um, you know, of course, there's the legal implications there, um, but it's, I can go and talk to your parents if they are not the abusers. I can go with you to talk to your parents to tell them. Or um, I can go with you to a counselor at your school so that you can tell them. Um, for a, a woman in a domestic violence situation, something like, I can keep your children for you while you go and either press charges or whatever needs to be done. So something very concrete and specific that you are letting them know, I will do this for you. Um, and then a safety plan. Uh, we see this a lot um, with, as I mentioned before, with domestic violence um, situations that uh, we don't understand why people stay in abusive relationships, but they do. Um, there's a lot of kind of psychological components to that. Um, and so sometimes it's very confusing. It's like, well, you know, he said he wasn't going to do it again, and he did, and he stayed with you, he stayed with you. So what's going on here? And it can be very hard not to um, become a little judgmental in that. Um, so the best thing that you can do for someone in that situation is offer them a safety plan, because you can't force an adult to go and disclose something. A child, you are forced to, um, in the state of Alabama, <clears throat> all public and private school um, teachers, staff, even higher ed, public and private school teachers, staff, are mandated reporters of, of child abuse. Um, so are any sort of healthcare worker that offers any sort of medical aid to a child, they're, they are mandated reporters. Any mental health um, workers are mandated reporters and clergy as well. So um, there are a lot of people who by law have to report, um, but even those who aren't mandated report Sending a child back into a dangerous situation um, is never really a smart idea. Um, and so getting some sort of help um, is always the better thing to do. Um, for a safety plan for an adult, if you have a woman disclose that domestic violence is occurring, um, the best thing to do for her is to say, okay, so at what point do other people get involved? You know, you've disclosed this to me. This is not a burden this, you know, the person who is trying to help should carry because you worry about her safety, right? The safety of her children that's constantly on your mind. So if she's not willing to get help, at what point do we get someone else involved? And make her answer or him answer that question. The next time it happens, um, the next time a bruise anywhere appears that it you know, hits me hard enough that it's a, there's a bruise, 
um, very specific. And then once she identified when she would be willing to go and get help, identify who would be the person to get help from. So when are we going to get someone involved, and who will that person be? Okay. That way, because the next time it happens, and say she calls you or he calls you, um, you can say, okay, instead of in the heat of the moment, you're trying to figure out a way to help, you already have established this with them. Well, remember when you said the next time that happens, we're going to go talk to so-and-so, when do you want me to pick you up? Or where would you like me to meet you? So you can see how having a plan ahead of time um, is very important in, in domestic violence situations. Um, provide support, not judgment. Um, some of us are a little bit more expressive with our facial uh, expressions than others, um, but be incredibly aware of your facial expressions when someone discloses something to you um, and how your body language is with them. Because what may look for us when we hear something, what may, what we're trying to show to the person telling us this is shock or I'm so sorry you had to go through that, but what they see a lot of times is disgust um, or other sort of negative, negative emotions coming from you. And when they've been the victim of abuse, they have a hard time discerning whether or not that's directed at them. Like, you think I'm disgusting because I was sexually abused. Like, you're disgusted by that. And so immediately, they become defensive. Um, so just be very careful with what you're expressing with your with your face. Um, they are very good at reading those expressions, particularly when you, they're disclosing something so personal. Um, be aware of the response to touch. Should you choose to extend a hug or comforting physical contact, uh, we kind of live in a culture where like, we greet each other with a hug, right? Because it's kind of what we do. Um, but um, when you're dealing with children, um, and adults who have been abused, touch becomes a very different thing to them. So, if you are wanting to offer that to someone who's talking to you about um, abuse they've experienced, ask if you can give them a hug, or at least let them know, like, I just really would like to give you a hug right now, and give them the opportunity to say, I just don't need that right now, okay? Because sometimes we force a hug or force this physical touch when they are in a, a very intense state of vulnerability something that a lot of us will never experience, that state of, of vulnerability with another person. <clears throat> Don't wait. Um, know that when you offer help, you know, say that you kind of see some of these signs popping up and you, you don't know for sure, but you think something might be going on, um, don't, don't wait to approach them. Don't, um, don't think, well, if I see them kind of looking like that again, maybe I'll say something. Um, but when you do offer your help, know that it might be refused. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, adults have a hard time kind of admitting when something's going on, but know that they won't forget that you offered. Um, and be, be prepared to follow up on what you're offering. So if you go to someone and say, I noticed this, this, and this, um, and I'm concerned, how can I help you? And they say, no, I'm fine. Okay, so if that's what they're saying to you, then that's fine. But know that in a month or so when they come back around and say, hey, you know what, you were right and I do need help. Make sure that you are in a position to say, okay, I'm here to help. Um, and not, that's not a really good time for me, or could you go talk to so-and-so. Um, and then don't assume that someone else will notice and address the concern. A lot of times uh, abuse goes 
unreported or unacknowledged uh, when someone assumes that the counselor will notice it at school or the elders or the minister will notice something's up and address it. Um, we can never make that assumption uh, when it comes to abuse. Some things to do <clears throat> when you're concerned for a child. Are there any questions? Just real quick. We will have time for some questions in here, but yeah, anything specific? Okay. Uh, some things to do when you're concerned for a child. Uh, consider the situation. Who's involved is very important. You're not going to want to send that kid home if it's the parents that are being abusive. Um, uh, who's involved and do you feel capable of approaching the situation alone? If not, find someone uh, that you feel you could take with you. Uh, consider your relationship with the family, um, if it's in a church situation. Um, kind of evaluate, like, how close am I with this family? How, do you, how will they take it if I um, kind of approach them with my concerns? And again, be prepared to stay involved. Um, a lot of times we think, like, well, if I pass them off and refer them to uh, a counselor, I'm good to check my box, I'm kind of out of the situation. Uh, and that is uh, never really the case. Uh, know the legal implications in your state when it comes to a child. Um, like I said, um, there's a host of people in Alabama who are mandated reporters. If you are one of those people who know who you are and that you are uh, required to report, um, and so it's always good to be aware of the, the implications within each state for uh, child abuse. If you're concerned for an adult, so it changes a little bit, uh, you need to evaluate the situation again. Who do you think is involved? Is the, safe, is the situation safe for you to approach on your own? Um, kind of the same as with the child. And then consider your relationship to the individual. Would they maybe take it better if you express your concern to someone they maybe have a bit more rapport with? And maybe go with that person. Um, and ask privately. Keep it simple and get specifics. So this is never something you would want to address in a group. Like, hey, you've been really weird lately. Is something going on? Um, that will get you nowhere. Uh, keep it simple. Never really beat, beat around the bush when you're wanting to address um, something like abuse. You have to be very straightforward um, and succinct in the way you ask. I've noticed that you have quit this, this, and this, uh, and I'm concerned is there something going on that I can help you with. Just that. Not, well, I've kind of been worried, and you go on and on and on, and they've already kind of shut down and go, oh, I see where this is going. I'm not telling them anything. Just very quick to the point, is there something going on? Um, and give them, kind of put it in their, uh, in their court, and then when possible, don't ask closed-ended questions, um, if, if at all possible. Um, when abuse has occurred in the past, uh, remember that children often experience abuse from those they love. It's far more likely for a child to be abused by someone they know than a stranger. It tells us a lot of things about how to help abuse children. Um, and how complicated it is. Um, that trust and love can be very confusing, like I mentioned um, earlier. Um, it's, it's very confusing when the person that you're supposed to trust and they say love that they love you is the one um, abusing you. And so you can understand how quickly that understanding of what love and trust is uh, in the context of abuse. Um, and so these are very difficult concepts for children. Safety um, isn't really easily attained for them because all of a sudden, Children kind of have the one down anyway in this world. You know, they're not as, they don't have as much control or power in situations, um, and especially in abuse situations um, when all of the control they even have of their bodies is taken away. 
um, understand the importance of meaning uh, of these words to a survivor of abuse. And I like to say survivor <coughs> of abuse because whenever I can, I try not to say victim of abuse. Uh, we know that when we use um, you know, the label of victim um, frequently with someone, that they will either do one of two things. They will take on this persona, this identity of uh, being victimized, and so they will be a victim, you know, and they kind of believe that about themselves. I'm a victim in this world, this is kind of my lot in life, or they will become victimizers and start abusing other people. And so um, we try really to talk about kind of the surviving abuse, and that was an event that happened, and now you're moving forward, um, and it's not who you are. Um, so that, that language is really important. Um, and these words, trust, control, power, and safety, are incredibly important um, to children and adults that um, uh, have experienced uh, abuse. Um, so a lot of times, uh, we, we don't really understand how different um, it is for a person to, to believe that they have some sort of power in their lives. Um, I guess, kind of imagine if, if all of that was stripped away from you, um, what that would feel like. And uh, just being able to trust someone enough to disclose a little bit um, is a huge step. Um, modeling. Um, observation is a powerful teaching technique. Uh, so you can model clear boundaries. This is for school teachers, but we also for families in the church, too, how we can um, be very clear and appropriate with our boundaries. Um, and being very honest, direct with our communication. Um, your a healthy friendship for an abused um, adult is a priceless gift. Um, a lot of times they sometimes come from abuse, abusive families. Um, so understanding what a healthy family looks like, um, not a perfect family because they're not there, but at least one that has boundaries and um, is, is, is based on honesty and trust. Um, unconditional acceptance, uh, that healing is a lifelong process. It requires patience and personal pres presence. Um, that is, this is a huge one. That Again, watching your facial expressions, watching how you treat that person, letting them know that the abuse is not who they are, and that's not going to change the way that you perceive them or respond to them um, is, is very important. Know your limitations. So at some point you... Uh, might feel like you're weighing over your head. Um, and just be honest with that. Say, I need to reach out and get some more resources. I need to reach out to someone who can handle this a little bit better. Um, and and that's, that's perfectly normal uh, and understandable as well. Um, so just know when, when that is and, and what, maybe ahead of time, know who you would reach out to. Stay involved. Again, um, if a person begins to receive individual help or professional help um, that doesn't, mean that it's your excuse to check out, um, because I guarantee you, um, and especially in a church situation, um, a community, uh, you will have a deeper and longer connection with that person, that therapist will. Okay, so they see that therapist maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks, um, and that won't last forever, but in the, in the church family, you will um, more likely have more contact with them over a longer period of time. Uh, and then prevention. I'm, even though I am kind of in the intervention business, I really pr promote prevention um, and some ways that we can do that, um, especially with our children or grandchildren. Uh, don't be afraid to talk about abuse. Um, 
really we avoid discussing abuse and talking about what it is, and we're really giving um, we're giving it more power than it has. And by talking about it and having it as something that we can converse about, we're eliminating its most powerful element, the secrecy. Um, and so it's if something if you are used to talking about abuse with your kids or grandchildren, if something ever does happen, because you've had those conversations, they know that you're like, okay, we can talk about that and that's okay, um, instead of, we never talk about those things. And so that might be um, in their mind, like, okay, well, it happened to me, but I'm not supposed to talk about that. Um, educate your children about good and bad touch. Um, talk about plans to stay away from potentially dangerous situations and what to do in case something happens. Um, kind of having that safety plan with kids. I would love to pretend like we live in a world where all of your children, none of your children will ever have to experience that, but the chances are that's not true. Um, and by uh, talking to your children about that um, it is a very important preventative measure. Um, and then show those in your life healthy touch. Um, it's been shown that when people experience healthy touch, they can more easily and quickly identify unhealthy touch. Okay, so this is for fathers and mothers hugging, showing affection towards their children. They know that that is healthy touch. But if that's not going on at home, there's going to be some, a deficit there. So if some bad touch or unhealthy touch happens outside of the home or un, outside of a healthy relationship, it takes them longer to understand what it is um, and know that, that's, that it's unhealthy. Um, so that's a very important component. Model healthy relationships for your children. Um, that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, and parents, stay involved with your kids. Uh, don't let kind of the, the way life goes and we get so busy be a distraction for um, the dialogue that we have with kids. Um, because if you're not talking to your children about abuse and about potentially dangerous situations, um, they're going to find it from someone else, and you don't want to take that chance that it's incorrect information. Um, and then we'll just close with this, and any questions you have, I'll be glad to answer them. This is uh, one of my favorite scriptures. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-4. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So again, I think as uh, Christians, we have a beautiful gift of understanding um, what Christ can do in us, um, and I think that um, we're called to extend that to other people. So, any questions? Yes? So some of these behaviors that are signs of abuse are signs of other problems. Absolutely. So you could totally get a family in big trouble yes. by saying, I think this family is being abused, I'm reporting to the authorities. So how can you discern when it might be an abuse versus some other, other issue that's going on? Other. That's a great question. So, um, again, unless if you are a mandated reporter, um, it depends on what situation you're in as far as like a work situation or a hospital situation, so things are a little bit different. But just being involved with the family, um, you aren't necessarily mandated to report immediately. Um, in a situation like that where it can be like, well, there's a few things going on, but it could also be these things, get involved with the family. Um, just really involved. Uh, and um, don't be afraid to talk to the parents about, hey, I've noticed these things. And you don't have to necessarily express that your concerned abuse is going on. Just tell them what you've seen. Like, I've seen that so-and-so, you know, was doing really well, and, you know, now all of a sudden they've got 
some really crazy behaviors in class and I'm just wondering, is everything okay? And let the parent kind of tell you what's going on and a lot of times um, that'll give you an indication if there's something they're not wanting to disclose versus um, them just not knowing what to do. Like, oh yeah, I have no idea what to do, I need help. Versus, oh well, you can kind of tell sometimes when they're trying to justify things or that bruise that this came from this and then you start to see a pattern over time. So my advice would be to not be afraid to talk to the parents but don't necessarily disclose what you think initially um, and then just get really involved in the family so that, you're, that you can see a pattern if there is something going on. Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Yeah? Awesome. Thank you all for coming. Appreciate it.